Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I am Brian Hefty live in the Morton studio. Today on the show we're going to be talking about managing soil pH, why that's so important, and how you can do it on your farm. If you've got any questions for us or if there's anything you'd like to talk about that's going on on your farm, you can call us here at 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You can email us, radio at agphd.com. <laughs> let, me, let me try that one more, one more time. Uh, radio at agphd.com. Or you can send me a note on Twitter, agphdmedia or Brian Hefty. So my brother Darren's out doing some traveling today. I am in the studio by myself, so I would love to take your call and visit with you on what's going on in your farm, and we will certainly get to your questions that you're sending in. I've already gotten a few in today and just starting the show here already in the Ag PhD mailbag. We'll get to that later in the show. But talking about managing soil pH, it's it's really a lot of fun to discuss this thing, and it's the first thing we always look at on the soil test. But probably the biggest thing I would say is we see a tremendous amount of variance in a lot of fields. And and let me first talk to you about the mistakes that we've made on this pH thing on our own farm. So I'll give you a couple of different examples, both on the high side and on the low side. Okay, so first of all, on the low end, before we started doing extensive soil testing, I don't know, let's call it 15 years ago, something like that, we had some major issues. And so some of the first good soil testing we did, we go, what? We have some pHs in the fours? Yeah, we do. Well, how, that, yeah, it can't be. How, how in the world do we have pHs in the fours? Okay, let me explain this to you a little bit. On Here's exactly what I think has happened for us and what may have happened for you and your farm. Let's go back 10, 15, 20 years ago before we had GPS, before we were doing variable rate applications, before we really were were fine-tuning our fertility programs. You would go out there, like for us, I'll just give you an example of us. Okay, so let's call it 15 years ago. We would go out and let's say that our yield goal was 130 bushel corn. All right, so we would say, you know, we got 130, but... I think we can get to 160. We better make sure that we have enough nitrogen out there. So we throw on enough nitrogen for 160 bushel corn, maybe even 170. And realistically, we were probably going to get 130, 140, something like that. Okay, But here's the thing. I want you to think about your yield monitor, which we also didn't used to have years ago. When you go through with your yield monitor, what do you find for variance in your cornfield? Well, for us, if our our yield average was, let's say it was 130, 140, we would see variance from probably 180, down 280, maybe even a little less than that, maybe even spots were 50, 60 bushels. Okay, so if we put on enough nitrogen for 160, 170 bushel corn, and we only got 50 to 80 bushels in spots, what's that telling you? That means that you have just over-applied a whole slug of nitrogen, so much nitrogen, it's crazy. And you think, where did that nitrogen go? Well, if it just went up in the air, it's not the end of the world, because let's keep in mind, most of the air we breathe in is actually nitrogen. So if it goes up in the air, it's, you know, it's not a disaster. But if it goes down in the ground and it leaches out, okay, now all of a sudden we got a real problem, because here's why. When nitrate is going to leach out of your soil, a lot of that is going to convert and it is going to strip out uh, strip out your calcium. 
So when it's stripping out this calcium, you think about that for just a second and you go, ooh, hey, wait, what, what really could happen here if I am stripping out my calcium? Well, that means your pH is going down. So my point is, let's just think about this and step back for a second. What did we do? We overapplied our nitrogen, which cost us money. And then because we overapplied that nitrogen, it converted to nitric acid and it stripped the calcium out when it was leaching out of the ground. So now you lowered the pH. So now what do we have to do? Um, by the way, we lost yield by doing this because in the meantime, our pHs came way down. Now we have to put lime out there to fix the problem. So you go, oh man, that's, that's not any good. Right, that's not. And so that's one of the biggest reasons why we really encourage you to do small grids or small zones for soil sampling and then apply your nutrients accordingly. Because when you over-apply, you've spent too much money, number one. And number two, now you may have a problem that you have to fix that costs more money. So that's not good and that's not wise. All right, now let me give you another example. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm telling you, these are mistakes we've made on our own farm. Okay, and I'm I'm certain that they're they're a mistake. These are the same types of mistakes that have been made on a lot of farms all across the world. So hopefully you can learn from our mistakes and you don't make the same mistake on your farm. All right, now let's take it the other way. So we realized, all right, we have spots out there of four or maybe in the fives. Okay. We need a crazy amount of lime. Yep, let's go spread a whole bunch of lime. But here was part of our problem. We started doing bigger zones, and that was stupid. Okay, I, I'm not opposed to zone sampling. Don't get me wrong. You're, what I'm saying here is you can't have great big zones, just like you can't have great big grids. A good example of this is I was just showing, we did this college uh, or collegiate agronomy workshop yesterday, and I was just showing these college students, hey, we had this field where, I go from one five-acre grid point, and it's 4.4 pH. The very next five-acre grid point says 7.9. Okay, so one of those needs lime. The other needs no lime. Well, with a five-acre grid, that's too much variance. You think about how many square feet that is. It's over 200,000 square feet. You can't tell me that the pH is exactly 4.4 in that entire thing. No way, no how. So we did this, and we had big zones or big grids. We screwed it up. And we put on where, where well, it says we need uh, lime here. No, we needed to do smaller grids. So now we've gone to one-acre grids. And I'm not saying you have to do that, do that on the whole farm or you have to do it every year. You have to do it for lots of years. But I am saying if you're seeing the kind of variance that we've seen where you've got a pH in the fours and the very next grid point, whether it's five-acre grids, 10-acre grids, zone, whatever, the very next one is saying, you got a 7.9 pH. Hey, you need to do smaller grids or zones, much smaller grids or zones to fine tune that thing because it is not just a straight out line. Oh, right here it's 4.4 and just across the line it's 7.9. No, you got to get that changed. So we'll talk about that and overall managing soil pH as we go throughout the show. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings craftsmen. From conception to completion, there's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com. 
Customer service goes a long way when trying something new. Ryan Shaw from Michigan shares how Soil Warrior helped him transition to strip tillage in his operation. The Soil Warrior guys, they are amazing to work with. They made this jump in this transition extremely painless. One question that I get all the time is, how is the service and everything? And I said, well, actually, I get better service from them than I typically do my dealers uptown. They're just amazing. More info at SoilWarrior.com. Bean growers continue to see yield loss from white mold across the Midwest this season. To maximize next year's crop, a white mold prevention strategy that includes Contans WG soil fungicide is a must for your farming operation. Applying Contans this fall to reduce the sclerotia in the soil is the most effective way to stop white mold at its source. Start a Contans white mold control strategy this fall or pay for it later in lost yield. Find your full potential and increase your bottom line with branded generic fungicides from Atticus LLC. Fungal diseases can be devastating, but Acadia, Slant, and Talaris 4.5F from Atticus deliver lasting, broad-spectrum fungi control so your soybeans, sugar beets, and dry beans can thrive. Growers across the region count on Atticus for relevant and reliable products that deliver results every time. Ask your local retailer about Atticus products and visit AtticusLLC.com to learn more. For value-based solutions you can trust, turn to Atticus. Always read and follow label instructions. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here live in the Morton studio. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about managing soil pH. But before we get back to that, we wanted to discuss grain markets just a little bit. We've got our friend Scott Harms with us. He is with Grain PhD in Archer Financial Services. Scott, how are you doing today? Very good, Brian. Good afternoon. All right. So USDA report came out on Tuesday. We haven't seen a lot happening since then. So can you tell us about that report and kind of what's going on with China right now? Yeah, USDA came out with their their monthly supply and demand report. We weren't expecting much from that report. All they do is kind of move some numbers around. I think the big play or the big question was how they were going to, if at all, take into account the China trade deal into the balance sheet. And it was pretty clear that they didn't make much um, uh, many assumptions of an import and uh, a pickup in demand based on that um, the numbers that they gave us. They did uh, cut the carryover for beans a little bit, corn. They uh, cut uh, exports a little bit, but they raised ethanol, the ethanol side of it, so that the balance sheet was left unchanged. Pretty benign report overall. Um, I think I think there is some. Um, I, I guess in the soybean side of it. I found it to be friendly. I think it's constructive longer term. The USDA uh, comes in with a carryover estimate around 450 million bushels, something like that. That's well below some of the previous numbers we heard about um, 12 months earlier of closer to a billion bushel. Uh, and the USDA, prior to the tariff situation of two years ago, uh, had a pretty has a pretty impressive track record of overestimating. Uh, carryover estimates in soybeans. They tend to go down. The usage is always outpaces what they anticipate. At least it has was before um, the tariff situation. So if you're starting with a 450 million bushel carryover, it's not burdensome by any stretch of the imagination right now. But it can get tight if there would be a pickup in usage, uh, perhaps a, a downtick in production out of South America or uh, so I think it puts a decent floor under the soybean market and does set up a potential for uh, a move higher at some point if that balance sheet were to tighten up. So I think there's kind of a secretive 
um, underlying supportive feature to the soybean side of it. As far as the China trade deal goes, we've been waiting um, patiently or impatiently for the last 30 days since that deal was signed, uh, anticipating that we would see that pick up in demand from China. It just hasn't happened. Now, perhaps we were overestimating when it was going to happen. When, it, when the deal was signed, I think there was a, a thought that right away they were going to take in um, some make some initial purchases, but then the Lunar New Year got in the way, and that delayed it. Then we thought, all right, well, implementation is as of February 1st, so it's going to happen then. That's what I thought. Uh, but now there was a 30-day grace period. So the next date, we have another date, and it happens to be the 15th, uh, which is Saturday. They have 30 days to, to implement this, to begin implementation of the plan. And they have already announced last week that they are going to remove some tariffs. Uh, the key, I think, for the initial purchases are probably going to be on the protein side. Now, that's still beneficial to U.S. grains, but uh, they need food, not feed right now. They've got you know, their, their problems with the coronavirus. Uh, that has probably slowed their need or you know, they've, they're dealing with other issues right now. Um, so their initial wave is going to be on the food side of it. So look for proteins to be a big part of the initial wave of purchases, perhaps some soybeans as well. Uh, but we could uh, very well be looking at something happening this weekend. We return to the trade on Tuesday following a three-day weekend, and I think we're going to be anticipating that there's going to be some sales announcements next week, fingers crossed. All right. Well, I, I certainly hope that that is the case. I have been very disappointed in what's happened with the markets since the China deal got signed. I expected markets to be going up, not down. So yeah, hopefully you're right and hopefully it changes. Okay. So I, I wanted to get into a few mailbag questions that we've got in specifically for you. Um, and by the way, for any of our listeners, if you have any questions about markets or grain marketing, you can go to grainphd.com and send in a question using the Ask an Expert tab. All right, so our first question is from Ken in South Dakota. He says, if I set a price floor with options, what do I do with the options after I sell the cash grain? Well, that's a good question, and I think, you know, it's the correct way of thinking it is when you buy the options, you are setting a price floor. You're you're really just setting a trap below the market. You still have pricing decisions to make as your basis firms up or whether you're you know, your pattern of cash sales are, you have to move that product at some point, and then you're going to be left with these options. Ideally, the market will have increased since you purchased the options, and uh, so the options are going to be worth less than what they are when you purchase them, if that's the case. You're selling the grain at a higher price, you'll take a little bit of a loss on the options, and then you got to figure out how to get out of it. Now, generally, we would we would basically take it on an individual basis. There's a few things you can do. So we would sit down and work out uh, what a plan might be. But you could maintain those options and just treat that as your next level of protection. However, uh, they're not going to provide, if, say, the market rallies to 420 or something like that, and you bought a 380 put or 390 put, it's not going to be worth a heck of a lot, and it's not going to provide a lot of price protection from 420. So you would one thing you could do is roll that option to a higher strike increase the delta on it, make it a little more of a hedge, provide more hedge protection with it. and um, Or you could just simply bail out of it, take whatever values left and add it to your, uh, take that loss. What I think what we would probably do is work it out with the individual and say, you know, all right, you sold your cash, you still have these options, maybe they're worth a nickel, you may have paid 12 cents for them, 
uh, let's see if we can catch a little bit of a dip in the market and, you know, have a, a plan to exit those somewhere between 7 and $0.10. Cents. Try to get a little bit of value back on them because you don't need them anymore once you've actually sold the cash. So then it becomes, you know, how much can I salvage out of this uh, so I don't reduce my my sale price uh, too significantly. So individually, we, we would sit down with each one and, and figure out a game plan, but but that's exactly right. Once you sell the cash, you don't need those options anymore, and you need to work on a way to get out of them. Right. So as a true hedge, you would immediately get out of them. But again, like you said, hey, if you only have a nickel you're risking, you're not gambling a whole lot. Okay, next question is exactly. from Casey. Next, next question is Casey in Iowa who asks, uh, there's so much poor quality corn out there. And by the way, I agree with you, Casey. Uh, when will the market start to factor that in? Um, yeah, we get that question a lot. Um, and unfortunately, the futures may never necessarily reflect it um, based on the poor quality. Uh, it may be uh, you'll see strong cash markets in certain locations, especially where good quality corn is deficient. You know, if you've got if you're sitting on good quality corn, you're going to be in the catbird seat, perhaps. Uh, what we may see it affect the futures is down the road um, in the subsequent stocks reports, because we end up feeding more corn because of the low quality. We end up crushing more corn on the ethanol side of it. One point, uh, make going back to the balance sheet adjustment on Tuesday, they did increase the ethanol usage by 50 million bushel in the last balance sheet. Now, we're not on pace for them to increase that 50 million bushel, so they made a little bit of a subjective decision there, and perhaps they may be taking into account the the yield that you get out of uh, a bushel of corn for ethanol that may be declining and they may be factoring that in. So well, there may be moves in that direction down yeah, the road I, where they may factor in. Yeah, I agree. And that's what I was going to say is it, it's going to mean more corn is going to have to get used when that quality is bad. So to your point, it'll probably be more of a long-term play. All right, I wanted to get quickly to this one. I've only got a minute, about, okay. about a minute left. Uh, Todd in Ohio asks, I'm wanting to use some options this year. How do I so- decide which ones to use? Uh, short answer is we're looking at the uh, September options that expire in late August. You want to go. You don't. Want, you you want to try to ch- stay as short a time frame as you possibly can in your program, so you don't pay all that extra time value if you buy options that could go out to December, November. But you're going to be pricing it in in the interim in in, in intermediate time. Then you don't want to pay all that extra time value. However, you can even shorten it up further if part of your marketing plan is I want to price. Um, 50,000 bushel by uh, June by June 1st, then look at a May option and, and spend less money, get that coverage on. Uh, so it's an individual thing, but as far as, as far as the summer protection, if you go out to the September options that expire in August, those are the ones we're focused on, and those are the ones we would use. Yeah, and I guess if you've got more questions on that, Todd, we just encourage you to check out grainphd.com. You can also get a hold of people like Scott. We really appreciate all the information he provides. Again, we've been talking to Scott Harms with Archer Financial Services and Grain PhD. Scott, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Yep, you do. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. 
Hey, Bill, any advice to control tough weeds and rootworms? That's easy, Jim. Buy two, save three. Wait, for weeds and rootworms? Buy two, save three. Combine your Impact or new Impact Z herbicide purchase with a qualifying insecticide and save $3 per acre. Buy two, save three. That is good advice. For details, go to buy2save3.com. Impact, Impact Z, and Buy 2 Save 3 are trademarks owned by Amvac Chemical Corporation. All rights reserved. Impact Z is a restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label instructions. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. How do you know when to run your grain bin fans? There's an app for that. With the Steps GMS app, you can manually turn your fans on and off from your smartphone. You can also configure the Steps GMS app to automatically turn fans on when the humidity or temperature is ideal to keep your grain in top quality condition. Save yourself some time and take the guesswork out of managing your stored grain with the Steps GMS app. Contact us at stepsgms.com for more information. What do you think of when you hear Palmer Amaranth or Water Hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like Water Hemp and Palmer Amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. The last thing you want after harvesting your grain is to spoil it before it goes to market. The Grain Temp Guard from FarmShop MFG is a low-cost bin monitoring solution that tracks temperature and humidity and alerts you when conditions exceed safe thresholds. Visit FarmShopMFG.com. We started utilizing the dual react system this year. You can adjust your speed and it automatically adjusts your sprayer tips. So you can slow down and you aren't building up huge droplets or you can speed up and you're not throwing a mist that's drifting. Hypro, helping you spray better. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. Thanks for listening today to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio. We're talking about managing soil pH. If you've got a question for us or if there's anything you'd like to talk about with this topic or any other agronomic issue going on in your farm, just call us here at 844-44-AG-PHD or you can send me an email, radio at agphd.com. So talking about this soil pH thing, and I, I failed to mention this in the open, but why is soil pH so important? It has a lot to do with nutrient availability and overall soil life. And so to talk about this a little bit more, we wanted to bring in Dick Goff. He is formerly of Mid- with Midwest Labs. He's over in Minnesota, and we go to him from time to time 
just talking about soil fertility in general. He is a fantastic resource for us. And Dick, we appreciate you being on the show again, uh, talking about soil pH. When I think about it, you know, I used to just think, oh, hey, I got to get this fixed. And I wasn't really thinking about why. But when I see my soil pH is off, let's say I've got an eight or eight and a half, or let's say I got a five, that probably tells me that my nutrients aren't in balance, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah, you, you you said it right on, you know, heads up on there. <clears throat> I got kind of a cold mess here, so I may sound a little bit uh, rough voice. But uh, your example you used at the beginning on that small area of the field and a small, you know, a major yeah. pH difference. Yeah. I'd like to take off on that a little bit. Sure. And and, and so come back to some of the other. Yeah, sounds good. So for, for anyone that has just joined us, what I had made the comment on is we had made the mistake on our farm having some big zones or grids. Well, one of the zones was very low pH. And I gave the example of a 4.4 and the very next zone or grid was a 7.9. Okay. And my point was we made our grids or zones way too big. When you've got that much variance from zone to zone, you need to go with smaller grids because what happened to us is we applied the entire zone or grid at the 4.4 with a whole bunch of lime. And what ended up happening is we over applied lime. We got our pH too high in part of that grid or zone. And now our yield went down and now we have to spend more money to try to fix the pH again. Okay, so anyway, go ahead, Dick. Uh, yeah, that fits right in. I've run into that so much. Or where I've looked at a field, I always like to come into a field and being able to see it from out in the distance and look for patterns out in the field. And uh, a lot of times you'll, the farmer will be looking at, well, I got injury on my soybeans when I put my chemical on out here. And, and it's not all over the field. It's just scattered around. Yep. So the first thing I do is go out and take a soil test <laughs> right in that area. Yep. And one step over, three feet over, take another one where the crop is not growing well. Yep. And all of a sudden we have, a, very similar to what you just said, I have one example I, I, I had pictures of I've used in meetings in years past, but... It uh, was like a 5-4, somewhere in that area, and then up to like a 7-4, 7-5. I don't remember exactly the numbers. But the other thing along with that, where that, that lower pH was, we had an extremely high magnesium to calcium ratio, which yep. is another secondary effect of uh, pH. It's right. all part of the pH. So anyway... That is the area that the crop was dying, and he was blaming the chemical. Well, on the other part of the field where we dug up the roots, three feet away, the beans were all nodulated real nice. The crop was growing. It had been sprayed with the same spray. The other area, the roots, no nodules, barely having a good root system. So what it boils down to is, yeah, pH is an indicator, and there's something definitely wrong in there. And one of the biggest ones to look at is for this calcium-magnesium thing, because I think uh, Kevin and I, three or four of us that have watched that the last 40 years, that's the number one thing we see out of whack when we have chemical injuries out there or crops not growing well. And that comes down to a lot of the foliar applied chemicals 
uh, that plant has to be healthy growing in order yep. to metabolize and break down that chemical. And if that uh, soil didn't let that crop be up to there, it's not really the chemical's fault. That gets back to that chemical has to have a plant because sometimes people have the idea because it's uh, I can use it on there, it doesn't affect it. Yeah, that affects it, but it has to be able to metabolize it and break it down. You need a healthy plant and a healthy root system for that. Yep, I couldn't agree with you more. Okay, so when we talk about the high magnesium and low calcium situation, are you usually then telling people to go gypsum there to raise the calcium up, or what's typically your first uh, course of action? Well, what we looked at uh, in this one situation uh, down in Iowa was like about 200 acres. It was on rolling ground, and every knob and every all over (laughs) was down poor. Well, it ran this kind of pattern. We were, they went in there and variable rated those areas with just pale lime, yep. about 600 pounds of the acre that put on those low pH areas. Yep. The next year, the yield was up equivalent to the rest of the crop. Now, that rung a bell with me that there was more happening than pH there. Because just changing that pH... Uh, in the surface that way, we wouldn't have expected uh, a yield going from like 95 or practically nothing up to, uh, you know, 160. Yeah. And that's what happened. Well, it happened that that low pH, there was an imbalance of manganese and iron in the soil. And when we put on that high calcium lime, then... It reduced that, and so was it the lime, or was it that that nutrient uh, that was back, brought back into balance? Right, well, uh, two trace minerals. Yeah, and that's so, yeah, and that's one of the. No, other- this is where <laughs> this is where yeah yeah. Uh, yeah, and gypsum I think would have done the same thing. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's the, the one of the big questions that we get is why? Why is exactly is the pH so important? Well, with nutrients, they can get tied up in these different soil conditions. So, for example, if I have phosphorus in a very low pH soil, it might get tied up with iron or aluminum. In a very high pH soil, it might get tied up with calcium. And so if we can get that yeah. pH more balanced, and a lot of times we're talking in the sixes for corn, soybeans, and wheat, you know, maybe a 6.5 or somewhere around that, we have more available nutrients there. So you might have the same number of nutrients you had at the 4 pH or the 8.5 pH, but now more of those nutrients are available, and that makes a big difference. Well, and that's where the gypsum comes in, because I know there's some research that has gone on in the past where they've gone in on a 5-4 pH and used 400 pounds of gypsum and 400 pounds of pell lime and 1,000 pounds of high calcium lime and done it for over three years and every year the gypsum has the highest yield and has significantly higher yield than all the other treatments now what's going on there right low ph soils generally will be short on sulfur because if they're if they're well drained and that now there can be differences there uh, this one I told you that wasn't necessarily, it was a tight, heavy soil. In fact, it was so tight and heavy, we couldn't hardly get the dirt off the plant roots in that, in that area. But uh, sulfur then will give you a response, but it also increases the breakdown 
uh, and availability of trace minerals, uh, calcium. Uh, you get that reaction of sulfuric acid when it disassociates in there, and some say, no, that isn't. Well, there's something awful beneficial happening there, and it tends to be more trace mineral availability. And that's yeah. the only way I can see is that it's that reaction of that gypsum breaking down and the calcium availability, which automatically increases the kale availability. Yeah, I agree with all that that you said there, Dick. And one of the points that you made is lack of sulfur in low pH. We even see that sometimes in high pH. We don't have the air pollution like we used to, so we don't have sulfur raining down from the sky like no. we used to. So we got to continue adding sulfur. Hey, Dick, uh, we got to take a quick commercial break. Would you mind hanging on with us and stick around for one more segment? Oh, I sure can. Okay, yep. sounds good. All right, we will continue talking about managing soil pH on the show today. Again, if you've got any questions, you can certainly call in at 844-44-AG-PHD or email us radio at agphd.com. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. When looking for someone to help with your risk management, a key component to look for is patience. Patience to bring you along in the process at your own speed. Patience to learn about your operation. And patience to not only discuss what strategies may be effective for your plan, but why they would be effective. That's the strength of Grain PhD. I'm Darren Hefty. When you're ready to become more engaged in your risk management, Grain PhD can assist you with that process. Visit grainphd.com to learn more. You're all set with the 4x4 turbo diesel truck. How about some options? Spray and bed liner? Absolutely. Tailgate step and nerf bars? Gotta have them. Tie down hooks and stainless steel toolbox? You know it. Tinted windows? Of course. Options are good. That's as true in the field as it is with your pickup. In addition to taking care of tough weeds, new Open Sky herbicide gives you more rotational choices than ever before and an easy-to-handle formulation. <laughs> Goose deck toe package? Yep. Discover more Open Sky details at openskyherbicide.com. White mold, sudden death syndrome, root rot. If you raise soybeans, it may seem like you have all the cards stacked against you when it comes to disease. But did you know there is a new cost-effective seed treatment which can help prevent all three? Heads Up Seed Treatment offers a new proactive approach for dealing with fungal and bacterial diseases. Compatible with other seed treatments, hedge your bet against disease this spring. Ask your dealer for Heads Up today. To locate a dealer, visit headsupst.com. What do you think of when you hear Palmer, Amaranth, or Water Hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like Water Hemp and Palmer Amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. You know a healthy crop is required for your best results. Simply put, balanced crop nutrition pays. AgriLiquid Fertilizers have the research, technology, and products to deliver those results. We also have an outstanding team of field agronomists ready to help you with your fertility decisions. AgriLiquid can help you maximize your yield potential effectively and economically. Visit agriliquid.com to find a dealer near you. Maximize your flexibility and control the toughest broadleaf weeds and grasses with Anthem Max herbicide from FMC. 
With a wide application window in both corn and soybeans, and with an easy-to-tank mix formulation, Anthem Max is ready to go when you are. Visit fmcagus.com or ask your FMC retailer about Anthem Max herbicide. Always read and follow all label directions and precautions for use. FMC and Anthem are trademarks of FMC Corporation or an affiliate. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. In our last segment, segment we were talking to Dick Goff. He uh, used to be with Midwest Labs for many, many years. Uh, just a wealth of knowledge, fertility expert. And Dick, one thing I wanted to run past you is this. Uh, and give me just a minute to explain this. On high pH ground, so let's say that I've got an 8 pH. What I often will tell people is, look, your pH is out of whack, but let's talk about why is it that way. And what I've commonly seen is five things, and maybe, Dick, you can add something to this, but what I've seen is it's either poor drainage, my topsoil's disappeared, poor irrigation water quality, high magnesium, or high sodium. So if I've got one of those four things, if my drainage is bad, my topsoil's gone, so I'm literally farming subsoil now, my irrigation water quality is terrible, I've got high mag or I've got high sodium, those are the five common things I have seen that really pushes soil pH up. And if we just simply address those things, then the pH starts to come down. Dick, is there anything else you could add to that? Is there, are there any other situations where you see the pH get really high? Uh, yeah, and yes, it is, and <clears throat> you touched on them there, and I always see, seem to see high magnesium and, and uh, oh, all of a sudden I got a blank in my high mind. High sodium? The high sodium yep. together. Yep. And many times high sulfur in the test, which is, if you have drainage problems, you probably could <laughs> still have sulfur there, so people say, yep. well, why are you going to recommend sulfur? Okay, that is sulfur then that has is air there as sulfur. What you need to do is put on a compound like uh, gypsum where you have that disassociation. You create the sulfuric acid reaction, which increases the availability of the calcium, and you're putting more calcium in there to counteract usually that sodium, but you've got to get drainage in there or yes. it's not going to work yep, because you got to move it out of there and it's got to go somewhere. Yep, I agree 100%. And so when I look at, obviously, number one, poor drainage, then the high mag and the high sodium, all three of those, I'm going to usually tell people, your drainage is probably the number one issue. Get the drainage fixed first. And I appreciate that you that you said there, Dick, a lot of times when you see high magnesium and high sodium, you often will see high sulfur because there's such poor drainage and that tells you how bad the drainage is. But you know, a lot of people people don't realize for sulfur, elemental sulfur to break down and become that sulfate form and for that sulfuric acid to be created like you talked about and lower the pH, you got to have air in that soil for the bacteria to thrive. So we've, number one, talked to people about improving the drainage. And number two, there are some biologicals now to help speed that reaction a little bit. Mm -hmm. But yes, I mean, drainage is number one. And, and you know, it's not, I, I what I tell people is when you think drainage, you think water. When I think drainage, I'm thinking air. That means I need more air in that mm -hmm. soil and then good things happen. Definitely. Yeah. Just think about when that drain goes out, it b brings the air into those pores back there, but you need the calcium availability to improve the soil physical structure. Yep. And the whole thing, I mean, 
we could go on for maybe two hours and not cover it all. Yeah, <laughs> like, there's I agree. so many interactions going on out there. And uh, the other thing in those soils, so many times you can't get drainage, like some of these potholes in these areas out west where they've made them smaller by putting a crop that is tolerant of the salts around the edges of these things and and letting those roots get down. And, and so there's, you know, many ways to look at it, but it's, yeah, moving that sodium or high magnesium and or magnesium down into the profile further and trying to at least get a eight ten inch profile where you got the better crop to uh, will grow here's the other thing that i will often bring up to people is these these issues didn't happen overnight you didn't get an eight and a half ph and a ten percent sodium in the last year. You didn't get no. a four and a half no. pH in the last year. These things have been building for potentially decades. And so that's why we're talking so much about soil testing. If we literally just do some soil testing, you can catch the stuff before it gets to that point and, and nothing is growing there. A lot of times that's when I get the call where the guy says, yeah, I can't raise anything here. Well, <laughs> I yeah. wish you would have called me right. 10 years ago and we could have uh, done a lot better uh, on this whole thing and you could have made some money, but now now it's going to take some years to get that fixed. So if you see something that bad, terribly high sodium, uh, you know, the saline soils, the sodic soils, how often do you think it takes to get a guy where his production is, is pretty good? I mean, is it five years? Is it 10 years? What is it usually? Well, material availability and a pocketbook that controls how much can be put on is one All right. of the factors. Because yep. if you could go out and put on like three ton of gypsum in some of that Missouri River bottom soil, you can turn it around in one year. Sure. But uh, so that is a factor. But you want to keep in mind you work from the top down. Uh, I think in some of those we've had situations where uh, ripping and breaking up a hard pan down there, the growth of limeing out a hard yes. pan. Yeah, you do if you don't have maybe nine, ten inches of rain. Or here's the other thing, irrigation. You'll end up with a hard pan down there. And what happens? You get the water out there, you put so much, you wet down about maybe 12 inches. But then what it happens, it dries right back out and it keeps increasing the concentration. And as I've seen that out in the west or along the James River where they use a chisel, just a straight chisel. And it, this was so classical one year, and this was a long time ago, back in the 70s that I saw this, that the one neighbor, he was using chisel point, the other had a twisted shovel, one was moldboard plowing. And I was with a seed corn company, and, that, yep. and they were all using the same corn. In the one, it just wasn't doing. Where the moldboard plowed, he had good corn. The deep chiseling, twisted shovel was better. Where it didn't. So mixing and breaking up and diluting and spreading that out, and then, like you say, get the sulfur, get the moisture, ways to move that down. Yeah, so a lot of times people will put drain tile in and they expect, oh, that's going to solve all my problems. And that's absolutely going to help. But to your point, why are you putting drainage help in? It's probably because the soil's been wet. Well, if the soil's been wet, right. there's a good chance that you've compacted it at some point. I know that certainly happened for us. And yeah. so, yeah, we start getting some tile and we go, oh, hey, we better address these compaction issues. And compaction isn't just, hey, I need to do tillage one time. Compaction, you also have to start thinking about building organic matter and building calcium levels. And you talk about 
about calcium all the time, but if you have more calcium out there and more organic matter, you are much less likely to compact that soil. Absolutely. Yeah, you get, you've got to put all those building things there together. I mean, you can get all the other if you don't have the available calcium. I, I, I talk available calcium, not just exchangeable or not just what shows up on the test. Okay, so I, yeah, seven. Yeah, so I, I apologize to you, Dick, but we only have about a little over a minute left, and I'm going to ask you to summarize this quickly. But when you say calcium versus available calcium, what do you mean exactly? Well, when we when you run a soil test, you're picking up the calcium carbonate and e, any free calcium out yep. there. Yep. The calcium carbonate is non-functional for the root to take it up or biological to use it or avail, available needs to be in soil solution. And as you increase the calcium in that solution, you increase the availability of potassium. Is there unimproved. I got all kinds of data. Is on there that. is there a test that somebody could run though to see the difference? Because you said I pick it all up. Is there a certain test a person could run so he could know what's available and what's not? I don't know if the lab down there is still running this this the uh, uh, exchange the exchange the, the exchangeable I'm, calcium. I'm, I'm not. Yeah, well, yeah. If the test that they strip off all the cations. Okay. And then you set it, let it sit for a week, and you see how much more that soil will replenish that soil solution. Oh, sure, gotcha. Uh, and, yep. and we do it for the cations, and we did a big program. We used to do it, and they wanted it out west. Now, I don't know if they're still doing it or not. But Interesting. But I had people do that numbers of times because it, it showed where... Soon as the, you can have the same, and the calcium magnesium ratio usually went with it. If you had yeah. a calcium magnesium at two to one, you weren't getting availability of KB, and you also did not have the exchangeable uh, calcium but, in there. But it yeah. showed what was happening. Yeah. Hey, Dick. We always learn something talking to you. Thanks a lot for the time. Really appreciate it. Uh, hope you're doing well out there, and we'll talk to you again soon. Stay tuned. This is Ag PhD Radio. We know balanced crop nutrition pays. AgriLiquid has the research, technology, and products you need to grow a great crop. Plus the expertise to give you a recommendation based on your soils, your fields, and your goals. AgriLiquid has the phosphorus, potassium, and micronutrient products necessary to deliver the best results from a solid fertility program. Visit agriliquid.com to find a dealer near you. Your independent spirit is more rewarding than ever before. Unlike programs that require growers to purchase a particular seed brand or to bundle certain products, the FMC Freedom Pass program rewards you for making the best choices for your fields. Our exclusive agronomic rewards, performance assurances, application innovations, and product financing make it easier to protect your crops and cash flow. Visit your authorized FMC retailer or fmcfreedompass.com to calculate your potential financial incentive and learn more. When it comes to my weed control, I know a head start can go a long way. That's why I spray early, so I can keep control all season long with a Roundup Ready Extend Crop System, the system that makes the difference. This is my field. Choose the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System for control of more weeds than any other soybean system. 
featuring Extendamax herbicide with VaporGrip technology to manage tough-to-control weeds, including up to 14 days of soil activity, along with the field-proven performance of Roundup Ready to Extend soybeans. Now you have the right tools to extend your weed control and extend your yield with the system that makes the difference. Learn how you can put the system to work in your field when you visit RoundupReadyExtend.com. Extendamax is a restricted-use pesticide. Performance may vary. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Check local regulations for specific requirements in your state. Your land is a legacy, a challenge from those who tended it before you to build on their foundations. At Corteva AgriScience, we understand what it means to be the stewards of a legacy. We embrace the challenge of building on the foundation of Dow AgroSciences to maintain your trust, to bring new solutions, to help you care for your land. See how we can help build your legacy at rangeandpasture.com. How much yield and profit did you lose the moment you put your seed in the ground? A poor stand at planting keeps your crops from reaching their yield potential, and closing the seed trench behind the planter is essential to establishing a good crop stand. The Germinator Closing Wheel from FarmShop MFG is here to give your crop the strong start it needs for maximum yield. Act now to receive an early order rebate plus free shipping. Get ready for spring planting with the Germinator Closing Wheel. For more information, visit farmshopmfg.com. Thanks for listening to Day 2 Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, live in the Morton studio, just talking about managing soil pH. And we wanted to bring on Dave Sender. He is with Environmental Tillage Systems next. They have the Soil Warrior. And the reason why is, uh, and and Dave, you can address this, but we get a lot of farmers asking, okay, my pH is way out of whack, but hey, I just rent this ground. Or you know what, in the short term, I can't get it fixed in two months. So what am I going to do this year? That's where banding fertilizer really comes in because we see a lot better availability, especially in where these pHs are out of whack when you band the fertilizer. So talk to us a little bit about that with the soil warrior. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. And that's a great point as far as, especially when you bring up the rent a ground aspect to this, but yep. um, we'll, have, uh, we'll have customers that will run pelletized lime and apply that right in right in the zone, uh, just as if it were uh, you know a granular fertilizer. And like you said, you're getting that uh, response uh, a heck of a lot sooner than maybe in a more traditional type of application. Yeah, and the nice thing there is you don't need much. So a lot of times guys are talking to me about 300 pounds or you know 500 pounds of pell lime across an acre. Well, you can put on a pretty small amount. If all you're trying to do is affect that one zone, you're in pretty good shape. And a lot of times I assume people are talking about putting their P and K down with your machine, right? Or, or do you have a lot of guys putting on more nutrients than just the P and K? Yeah. So, so yeah, the, the P and K would be, you know, the, the, the standard, but we do have a customer that will put nitrogen down, whether it be a sure. urea product or, you know, ESN, yeah. um, but there's also micronutrients, elemental sulfurs, uh, you know, there, so, so just as every year ticks by, it, it seems, it seems that you have folks doing more and more and trying uh, new things. So it's, it's one of the nice things about doing this job is, is 
you know, we get to learn things every day uh, from the folks we work with as well. Yeah. So with your machine, in a lot of cases, like when we're using it in our, our own farm, we're putting a lot of fertility in that four inch to eight inch range. And it's good for a couple reasons. We have a lot of nutrient stratification out there where the top couple inches are loaded up. Don't need a whole lot more fertilizer there. But one thing that I don't think many people even talk about is there are a lot of high soil pHs throughout the northern part of the country. But if you go inch by inch down in the soil, the soil pH is almost always lower in the four to eight inch area. And so people get really concerned about phosphorus tie up and even to some degree potassium not getting into the plant as much in high pH. But with the phosphorus, especially they worry about the high pH tie up. Well, if you can put your phosphorus down four to eight inches, you won't have near the tie up because the pH is lower because that's where a lot of the roots have excreted their acids. Correct. Absolutely. And that's that placement becomes crucial. All right. So when we brought up this managing soil pH and we asked you to be on the show, what else did you think about? Is there anything else that our listeners would appreciate hearing about when it comes to managing soil pH, especially when we're talking about strip till? Yeah. So it kind of ties in is we've, we've discussed, I'm sure before as, as the strip till approach or, or practice being a complete systems approach so it needless to say all uh, everything kind of ties in and in back to one another but with with strip till a big aspect and a big benefit of that is improving your soil health and and between that soil aggregation and helping uh, one of the benefits is water infiltration so when it starts to talk about um, you know high pHs and and concerns yeah. with high salt contents yep. um, having that the ability for that soil to have water flow, for, I guess for lack of better terms, flow through that soil profile uh, easier uh, helps kind of manage that uh, concern as well. So that's one of the big benefits of, of strip tilling. Um, you know, the previous uh, the previous uh, gentleman you had on talked about some of the compaction layers and some issues with hard pans. There again, it kind of ties back in with that water infiltration and breaking up those compaction layers in, in hard pans as that as that soil improves. Uh, it, it, all of that being as part of that whole system can, can kind of help manage and balance out your pH levels in your soils. Yep, I agree 100%. And, you know, that is one of the nice things that I do bring up to people with the strip till. Hey, at least I know to the bottom of the strip, I got no compaction there. So it really helps get roots down deeper, faster in the spring. At least that's what I've seen in our own operation. Well, we've been talking to Dave Sender. He's with Environmental Tillage Systems. Dave, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a great day. You bet. All right, so just to kind of sum things up on managing soil pH, number one thing I would tell you is if you've got lots of variance in a field, go to smaller grids or zones so you don't screw it up like we did, either pushing the pH too high or pushing it too low. When you think you're doing the right thing, you just don't have the right data. Okay, so make sure you've got small enough grids or zones there. The next thing is if your pH is off, that means something is most likely out of balance, whether that's too much magnesium or too much sodium or uh, you have been over applying your nitrogen in the past and that's driven the pH down. Something caused the problem and most likely it was something that you did or did not do. There is a management practice so you can make things better. Get your nutrients more in balance and in a lot of cases you're going to see that pH start to get in balance. 
Uh, and I, I guess the, the final thing that I would say here is you absolutely can make a difference on your farm. And it may take a little bit of time, but especially if you own that ground, I want you not just to think about you, but I want you to think about the next person who's going to farm that ground. If you get it in good shape now, that next person is really going to thank you in the long run. So just kind of keep that in mind. This is a long-term deal when we start talking farming. All right, I want to get back to the Ag PhD mailbag. I got just a little bit of time here. This one comes from Murray up in Canada, and he says, Hi, farm in southwestern Ontario, and I listen and listen to and watch your shows uh, quite often. Anyway, I've heard you comment about the importance of building base saturation K, but when I read, or he says I was watching a video, he says, of Neil Kinsey making a comment that if your pH is over 6.5, that you should apply your potash as close to planting as possible and not try to build the levels. So what do I do here? Okay, so I, I would just say this, Murray. I, I We love Neil. We have learned so much from Neil over the years, done stuff with him for a lot of years. But this is one thing that I have data I can show you where we have been able to build potassium levels and high pH. And by the way, that then helped drive our pH down. And nobody ever talks about that except for us. And it's because I've got the data showing that we've been able to do it. So what I'm trying to tell you here is if you've got base saturation levels that are way too low, now we talk about four to 8%. Neil will talk about 2%, but he does run a little bit different tests than we typically are too. And I would just say, you know, 2% might be okay if you're talking a little bit lower yield goals. You know, we're talking really high yield goals now, 300 plus bushel corn, 100 bushel soybeans. That's where we're trying to get to. And then in that case, I absolutely want to be at least 4% base saturation K. I'd also say if you've had lots of lodging issues, green snap, any of that kind of stuff on your farm, you got to start pushing that K up as well because it's most likely a shortage of K causing your problems. But anyway, I, I would just tell you this, as we've gone up with our base saturation Ks, our pHs that were out of whack have started to moderate. It's been really interesting to watch that. So we've absolutely been able to build. You know, I we've addressed this exact same question many times over the years because it is one thing that Neil says that is a little bit different than what we say. But I would also tell you this, because I've asked Neil specifically about it, and he said, well, when you guys were doing this, were you also trying to lower pH? And I said, well, I've improved my drainage, and I've improved nutrient levels of the other things that were off, and I maybe have you know, worked on trying to lower my, my magnesium a little bit and stuff like that. And he goes, well, you know, there you go. You're trying to lower the pH as it is. So I, he said, I wouldn't get too worried about it. If you're seeing success, you're seeing success. And that's always the answer. You know, I say this all the time too, like for Darren and me, occasionally, now most of the time we actually agree, but occasionally we do disagree on something. And I honestly do not care if I'm right or wrong. What I care about is that our farm does well. So what we always say is, hey, let's just prove it in the field. Okay, let's let's see. So what I would encourage you to do is try some where you're you're pushing the potassium a little bit more. And here's the worst, very worst case scenario what's going to happen to you. You put on more potassium than it seems to pay. As long as you own that ground, you're going to be able to extract that K over time anyway. So you could just cut your K back in the future if you think you've now overdone it. But no, you need more K if you're down below 2%. So I would encourage you to take a look at that. Try some of that on your farm. It absolutely should work. And that will also help drive your pH down. But I'd love to
to see your soil tests. If you want to send us your soil tests, I can uh, maybe give you a little bit more information. Ooh, it does say. Uh, let's see. It looks like I may have soil tests. Oh, may have to address this again tomorrow. So it looks like I got some more soil tests. We'll try to get more to, to specifically to your question here. Anyway, uh, thanks a lot for listening today. We really appreciate it. And uh, we hope you can join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.